Welcome back to the Extension Experience Podcast. I'm Dana Zook. Today, I am back on the OSU Stillwater campus to speak with Dr. Paul Beck, one of our Beef Extension Specialists. Paul, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. Been looking forward to this. Yeah. So Paul is joining us today to talk a little bit about small scale finishing beef cattle. But before we dive in, Paul, tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of how you cycled back to become here at OSU. Well, I was raised on a uh, beef cattle and wheat farm in Guthrie, Oklahoma. I came to OSU, uh, got my bachelor's and master's here. I started in 1986 on my uh, bachelor's degree and finished it in 1990 and stayed on uh, working toward a master's in 90 through 93 with the focus on wheat pasture, uh, stocker cattle production. I went back to the farm for a few years, had a wife and a couple of kids and then uh, wound up getting uh, recruited to come to University of Arkansas and manage a research farm at uh, one of their outlying stations. Wound up working on my PhD while I was there. Uh, took about six years to get my PhD. Oh, man. <laughs> but um, about the time I got done with it, they uh, needed a new faculty uh, member on that station. So I was able to stay there. I've spent a total of 21 years at the University of Arkansas in the Southwest Research Station. Three years ago, I got an opportunity to move back here, taking on the role as a state beef cattle extension specialist, focusing on nutrition and management of stocker and feedlot cattle. Okay. Paul, I I feel like you just got here. It's been three years. Time's flown. So when you went to Arkansas, did you feel like, did you think you were going to be there for 21 years? I swore to my wife that we would be there for as short a period of time as we possibly could. I know how those promises happen, <laughs> right? <laughs> and life happens, right? Yep. Well, if you had little kids, you probably had them in school. And, you know, sometimes it's easier just to stay and continue. And We, we were really blessed to be at Arkansas. Uh, there's a lot of really good people there, really good farming operations and cattle operations there. Uh, it's a hidden gem. There's a lot of beautiful parts of that state, and we enjoyed our, our time there. And don't regret coming back, but no. we uh, do miss their parts of, of of Arkansas. Yeah, so that area, my husband and I went hiking to that area in a similar type monsoon type day. Uh, it is raining today in Stillwater, uh, the day we record, but uh, we went to that area of Arkansas and did some hiking a couple years ago, and I just didn't know that it was so beautiful. I mean, I had never been to Arkansas before, but I think I think I could agree with you. It is a beautiful part, but I'm sure it's a little bit nice coming back home. Oh yeah, getting being closer to family and and being back home at Oklahoma State University is a you know, it was it was our goal, uh, one of our life goals to mm-hmm. to move back. Coming full circle. So, Paul, in recent years, uh, the popularity of local raised beef has increased substantially, and we've seen it across the U.S. And I think some of it's unearthed from COVID-19 and some food insecurity feelings that kind of occurred during that time. What other factors do you believe has brought light to this locally raised beef movement? I think our consumers as a whole really like the idea of locally sourced food. They want to know where their food comes from and are willing to pay for it if if they can Mm -hmm. afford it. We're in an area where we can actually raise beef cattle all the way to finish. And, you know, without stressing the animal, we have fairly close 
feed supplies and, and everything to make it work. You know, there's other parts of the United States that it's not it, uh, quite as easy as it would be in, in the Great Plains. So I think there's a drive by our consumers that want to know where their food comes from. And locally sourced food is, is part of that. You and Dr. Lawman put out this fact sheet a couple years ago that talks about considerations for finishing beef. Um, an excellent fact sheet. And so today we'll focus a little bit on that. And in the future, my hope is to get someone on the podcast to talk about some of the rules and regulations for selling locally raised beef, because that's a big part of it. Oklahoma has certain rules and regulations, whether you want to sell you know, at a farmer's market or sell across state lines, there's a lot of different rules and regulations. The, the rules are pretty complex and yeah. they're also state to state. If mm-hmm. you have state inspection, you can, uh, and you and your plant is state inspected, you can sell within the state yeah. and you can sell beef cuts within the state. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're federally inspected, you can sell across state lines. Right. But most of our small packers are not inspected. So, yeah, most of them are custom, right? Custom and, and plants. Custom plants. So, you're kind of selling the whole animal. Right. And it's the consumer that has to take the risk as far as that inspection. Part. Right. So, um, it's uh, selling pieces and parts versus selling, you know, halves and quarters of, of beef yes, exactly. we're focused on right now. So, let's dive right in. So, what, Paul, are the advantages of raising your own beef rather than buying, say, from a local grocery store? If you want to raise your own, you know where it's coming from. You know what how the animal's been treated. And you can also take some of those animals that aren't probably as high a value, whether it's a spots or stripes, that would have a discount when you sell that animal right. at the sale barn. But there's really not anything wrong with the animal. You can, you can finish that animal and keep it yourself and, and not worry about that discount. Well, the one thing that comes to mind is maybe like a, a heifer that didn't breed. Maybe that selected part of your selection of replacement heifers that she didn't breed, but you can just turn them over and, and maybe use yeah, it that's there. A, that's one option, um, too. You know, if you can get that animal on a high concentrate or a high energy diet, it doesn't have to be concentrate. Mm-hmm. And we'll uh, talk feeds. about that here in a minute. At an early enough age, you know, you can get an acceptable beef product from a, a uh, open replacement heifer. Right. So diet, animal selection, those are all things personally that you can select if you if you have that connection. So what about the disadvantages, Paul? Are there some complicated things that go along with this? I mean, so say I mean, it may not be complicated if you're just going to your neighbor and purchasing it. But what if you're what if you think you want to do this yourself? Is, is if, this hard? If you want to, it's easy and, and hard. Right. Both in, at the same <laughs> it is a complicated time. thing, right? It is. One of the biggest challenges is finding a, a diet mm-hmm. locally enough to where you can, you know, transport it to those animals. A lot of our local co-ops won't be able to sell bulk feed and it's, you know, you're you're buying feed at retail instead of a, you know, like a commercial feeding operation is buying feed wholesale and mixing it themselves. Mm-hmm. You're not going to get diets, finishing rations uh, as cheaply as what a commercial feed yard will be able to prepare. Right. You're also m- needing to manage the feeding of that animal. The The best case is to hand feed the animal daily, and you get into the complicated part of the animal husbandry of feeding an animal. The same amount or the right amount, the same time every day, which to feed 10 animals uh, on your own, hand feeding them, 
is not hard on a daily basis until you want to go to a ball game. Right. Or, you know, something over the weekend. Uh You know, you've got to have somebody take care of the feeding of those Mm -hmm. animals. And it's not appropriate just to double up the amount of feed because then you'll start getting into you know, digestive problems and, and, Mm -hmm. and start causing harm to the the animal just because of your, your feed. Also the commercial feed yards, finishing diets are a lot higher in energy, cereal grains, usually corn or flake Mm -hmm. corn compared to what we can buy. Right. And that's probably a good thing because most of our management is not uh, as professional as, as a commercial feed yard would have as far as Pen riders, feed callers, mm-hmm. feed truck, you know, delivery drivers and uh, those types of professionals. So your uh, management may not be as good or your ability to, to, you know, deliver feed at the right amounts to the to the animal. So, you know, a slightly lower energy density, we're going to take a little bit longer to finish that animal if we're going to the same weight and carcass endpoint, like fat thickness or, or whatever target we're looking at. Right. Okay. So also, um, one thing I think about too is cost of purchasing the animal or retaining the animal. You do have a cost of the animal, even if it's born on your operation, it's not free. Right, Paul? Exactly. There's, <laughs> so, there's a, there are opportunity cost of there, selling There, there, you got the good term. Okay. And then, um, one other thing I thought about, um, finding a local processor. Okay. So that's been a challenge. <laughs> Usually they, um, or used to be, yeah. there was always some open slots, you yeah. know, within a week or two. Mm-hmm. Here recently, I've talked to several that, or several people that are feeding animals out, and they're, you know, a year out as far as their schedule. So right. that doesn't mean that they won't be somebody drop out and have something available, but uh, that's, you've got to be lucky uh, to, yeah. <laughs> to get that the right time. Well, and so. you think about it, you don't want to put this animal on feed on high concentrate of diet, you know, start them on that final finishing phase and say, oh, well, I need a processing date and then feed them that finishing finishing ration for a year, right? It takes a lot of planning. Those are some things that go along with it. They are disadvantages, but they're also just part of the deal. Exactly. Paul, let's talk about selection, um, selecting an animal. So you talked a little bit about this, our, our cattle with, you know, spots, our colored animals. Um, what is the benefits or... Um, what animals have certain qualifications for finishing? So say a Holstein animal. That's what my my family always raised. We're, we we raised beef cattle, but we sold all them and we would buy Holstein steers. So let's talk about dairy versus conventional beef cattle or because those options are there. Uh, depending on the dairy animal, they're not all the same. Right. You know, a Holstein, you know, very large framed. Mm-hmm. They they eat a lot of feed. A lot. They don't <laughs> they don't gain as rapidly as a lot of our beef animals. They're lighter in muscle, so their carcass will have a lot more bone and a lower dressing percent. So right. whenever they go to harvest that animal, take off the hide uh, and the uh, guts, entrails, and mm-hmm. and whatnot. So there's a lot more gut mass to those animals than there would be with a beef animal. So if we take that animal to the same fat thickness, you know, uh, they also don't put on fat the same way as a, a right. beef animal. So the, the fat thickness will, will look a little bit different on those animals than a truly finished beef steer. You know, we're thinking about 59% dressing percent uh, compared to 63 to 65% on a, on a beef animal, depending on how far you take them. So. Mm-hmm. 
um, a little bit lower yielding, um, more bones. So, and and the ribeyes are shaped differently than what right. you would be used to. I remember enormous T-bone steaks. And and yes, they, <laughs> they are so um, big. <laughs> they're they're so large frame that they just take a long time to to put on fat, and they can be extremely large. And that's one of the problems with them in commercial production, and that's why they're so. Uh, lower valued or one of the reasons why they're lower valued at, you know, at the livestock market. Yeah. They do. Uh, and most of your, your dairy animals, they do marble well. Mm-hmm. So they're going to have a very high quality beef product whenever you're done. When you start looking at jerseys, they're smaller frame. A lot of our dairies have some Jersey and some Holstein and the, they're smaller frame. They're, they're slow growing. They're not efficient. And they'll get fat at a, a much lighter weight. So somebody that's got a small family and and you know doesn't want to be eating on that same animal for you know months or years, years. At, <laughs> right? Um, you know they may slaughter at about you know a thousand or eleven hundred pounds compared to thirteen to fourteen hundred pounds on a, a Holstein. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Holsteins, if you take them as far as what a commercial feedlot would do, the, a lot of those will weigh 15, 1,600 pounds. Yeah. So the very large animals, compared to a smaller animal, if you can get by with a slower growth and less efficiency. You know, that mm-hmm. jersey may be a, a, a nice product for, uh, you know, just a locker plant or a freezer beef. Right. And some some plants, some smaller plants, they don't like those Holsteins to be so big because their chains to hang them only go up so far. And so that's why I know some some commercial packers don't like to take the Holstein. So that's something to think about, just a larger carcass. Now, Paul, what about steers versus heifers and even bulls? So there's there's a few differences there. Oh, there's, there's a lot of differences. Yeah. Heifers are um, of the same frame size as a steer, slaughter about a, 100 to 150 pounds lighter. They put on fat earlier in uh, their maturity. They're a, another good choice for somebody wanting to, to feed freezer beef or, or locker beef because mm-hmm. they get fatter at an earlier age and a lighter weight and will fit the, the freezer better in a lot mm-hmm. of home uh, instances. Uh, steers is kind of what we base everything on, you know. So most of our medium to large frame steers, we would consider them finished at 1,300 to, to 1,400 pounds nowadays. The heifers would be probably 1,200 to, to 1,300 pounds if if we take those to the, the same spot as a commercial feed yard. Right. Bulls. Now, I mentioned bulls just because some people ask, right? They are even later maturing than steers. Okay. They put fat on at a much uh, higher body weight and later age as you finish them. Mm-hmm. Bulls are very commonly finished in South America and in certain parts of Europe because they want that leaner meat. Uh, their consumers you know, want that leaner meat. The problem is they don't marble and they're not going to be as, as tender um, as uh, a steer would be. Mm-hmm. They will grow fast and and uh, be quite efficient, but the quality meat quality will not be ideal for for what our most of our American consumers prefer. Right, I would think the behavior of an, a very large pen of bulls would be problematic. Yes, but I, could, I um, could I could be wrong. They um, 
they tear up everything. I think so. <laughs> I, uh, I've, I've seen some uh, pens of bulls at a commercial feed yard and you talk to the cowboys and the maintenance crew and everybody associated. They hate them as much as they hate the Holstein. So, <laughs> so yeah. So just a little bit of different hormone makeup than, yeah, you know, there's a lot of aggressive covered. behavior and they can be dangerous. Right. When they get large. So. Right. And so that's not a common thing here in the U.S., but we do see it in other countries. So um, let's briefly talk about facilities. So if someone's just getting into this, maybe uh, talk about it's important to have some shade some windbreaks. Uh, we don't just want to set up a little pin out in the backyard and, and put our animal in there, right? Yeah, f- facilities are going to be important. It doesn't take a lot of room for, you know, one or two animals. Uh, you know, I, my rule of thumb is about 200 square foot per uh, head, and we can go down as low as, you know, 10 to 12 inches of, of bunk space per, okay. per head. I think in the industry, we, we normally see, you know, the pens will be designed for 100 head and they'll be about 80% capacity. So, yeah. you know, a lot of times we'll see instead of 12 inches per, you know, linear bunk space per head, it'll okay. be, you know, more than that. You know, in the winter, we need a windbreak, especially in, in Oklahoma for comfort of the cattle. And whenever we get into June, July and August, we really need shade in central Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're we're more humid than than most of our cattle finishing regions uh, would be, and uh, we don't have the night cooling that we would have in the Texas Panhandle or Oklahoma Panhandle. So we need shade, need some way to get you know those cattle comfortable, uh, so they're not under heat stress. You know, if you are just doing a few, you may never need a working chute or something like that. But you need to have some way to get that animal to a health professional. Right. You know, yeah. so, and, and loadout facilities. Yeah, you have done. to be able so, to take them, be able to take them somewhere. Because it's likely that well, they will still need vaccinations, yes, right? We still yeah. need the basics health of the health. And so going take them to a vet perfectly fine there's a lot of producers that utilize that over their own working facilities and then we would say well water versus surface water or pond water just better efficiency better overall consumption yeah, for, for the most part yeah. you know if we have a, a, a good pond you know you can True. get by yeah uh, but for the most part you know unless we're in a pasture type situation uh or a grass crop type of situation you're going to be looking at uh well water or, or rural water that's important, I think, especially with the heat management that yeah. we've seen even so far this spring. We've had some really hot days. And so yeah, especially now as we're going, you know, our, our spring seems to be a little bit later, but we're, right. we're having hot days and then, you know, a cool two or three days and then some more hot. So they're not able to really get used to the heat yet. Yes. So that's where you have most of your heat stress. So you talked a little bit about feed storage and handling, finding your local feed dealer, um, how bulk feeds are a little bit more efficient than the retail feeds. So we're not, from a cost standpoint, wouldn't want some bagged show feed to finish our animal just because it's so expensive. Um, so that's that's one thing to think about. Now, as far as managing the feeding of the animal, um, understanding how to adapt that animal maybe from a forage-based ration to something a little bit higher concentrate is something that I think a lot of people overlook, that we don't want to just make switches yes. really quickly. Uh, consistency is is very important when you're feeding animals, especially mm-hmm. when you're trying to get them to gain. You've got to get them to gain rapidly to put fat on. You need to have as high a quality and high energy 
ration to feed those animals as as you can manage. Mm -hmm. The commercial feed yards will have an energy for gain values of about 60 to 65 Mm -hmm. even. Um, Those are very high concentrate grains and byproduct feeds, Mm -hmm. uh, very highly digestible. Such as like steam flake corn. Steam flake corn, uh, high, high moisture, moisture corn. corn. Right. Even even you know they'll they'll roll corn and then have some finely ground corn to go with it to, right. to increase the rumen availability of of the starch that's in the, in that. A lot of our on farm finishing diets that I would recommend are quite a bit lower in energy, down around fifty five NEG to you know fifty seven. You know. And a lot of those will be based off from byproducts, whole corn, mm-hmm. um, and much much simpler, safer type feeds. Because more available too. More available to yeah. to a lot of co-ops and uh, regional feed suppliers. You know, will will blend byproduct feeds together, and and those are they're safe, but they're high enough in energy you can get. Yeah. Enough performance for the cattle to get fat and, and have marbling occur. So like soil pellets, wheat mins, maybe just a, a, they would do a lot of times a blend of a yeah. variety of different things. Like and, that. and we've seen, you know, these if you're feeding about a, a third corn and a third distiller's grains mm-hmm. and a third soy holes or, or some of those kind of blends actually work fairly well, but they're not high enough in roughage by themselves. Right. So. There's there's different ways that a person can feed the animal. They can have a total mixed diet where it has all the roughage, all the protein, and all the mm-hmm. the grain sources together. There's been research um, over the years where they f- can feed it separately. When you look at you know giving the cattle options to go and eat some roughage, it can be fairly low quality, and they will leave the hay the 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 feeder and, and go get roughage if mm-hmm. it's on offer because they know they, they need that uh, for room and health. So depending on how you're supplying that, you can hand feed a, a uh, 100% concentrate diet, mm-hmm. uh, kind of limit feed it right. to the amount you want and have you know decent good quality hay on the side. Uh, we've also got producers feeding in, in these big bulk uh, Like a self-feeder? Okay, and, yeah. Um, if you look at the diets that, that they're able to get, you know, it has uh, alfalfa pellets, maybe sometimes some pelleted uh, cottonseed holes, okay. soy pellets, whole corn, uh, wheat mid pellets, and, and a lot of those types of byproducts. The roughage content of, of like even alfalfa pellets are very low. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the only true roughage will be kind of a, the whatever small amount of cottonseed pellets they'll have in that. If the producer has some hay to the side, they will consume a considerable amount of that concentrate feed, but leave it and go and eat the, right. the hay. And, and we've been able to take cattle that appeared to be acidotic, you know, just evaluating their uh, fecal pat or manure. Mm-hmm. And when we introduced hay, they pretty well straightened all that out. So uh, there's some ways you can feed different things to to make that work, just depending on your 
program. And so, Paul, when you and I both understand nutrition and diet issues, so acidotic, when Paul says acidotic, it's a, it's a digestive upset. Acidosis is what happens to cattle who consume too much grain. Um, the rumen pH goes down quite a ways. And so that's what we're talking about, trying to avoid that digestive upset and adapting those cattle appropriately. And producers are like, well, how long do I take this? Sometimes, you know, two weeks to adjust two, them two. up, two yeah. to three weeks. I mean, you know, in, the, in the commercial feed yard, 21 days is kind of the going rate. 21 right? to 28 days is, right. is a, a way a lot of them step up. And so we don't just, I should have mentioned this earlier, we, we oh, don't just- okay throw feed out there to an animal you know we need to to start them slow uh have them a roughage source that they're familiar with and then increase the amount of grain you know maybe a pound a day mm -hmm. so if you've got uh hay to the side uh and your finishing ration that you're going to provide you know you could feed one day one pound per head per day and then the next day go up to two Next right. day, go up to three and just kind of slowly step them up. And by the time you get to about two weeks to 20 days, you're up very close to full feed for, you know, 700 pound animal. We figure they'll, they should eat about 21 pounds of dry matter, which would be, uh, I don't know, Paul, <laughs> <laughs> you do math on the 20, air, <laughs> 20, 23, 24 yeah. pounds of a uh, total feed. So. And and I always tell producers like those animals will tell you when they've met their limit too. Talk, looking at feed refusal, yeah. um, when they start to refuse, you've hit their limit. Now it doesn't mean that they won't go farther as they grow because their rumen volume, you know, will increase a little bit, and they'll get used to it. Yeah. And so I'll let the animals tell you kind of how to do it. And um, so there is a little bit with that with the nutrition. And so Paul, we would say. Um, getting some assistance from extension educators who have some nutrition background, some nutritionists. There's some really good feed dealers here in Oklahoma that offer those feed products, but also offer nutritional advice. Yeah, don't, and, and don't, I don't, it's, you don't have to jump headlong into this without some help. Yeah, be sure you get some help if you're very new to this and have never fed an animal out. Uh, it's not something you want to, to do on your own and try to figure out on your own. And there's plenty of resources uh, to get that assistance. The one last thing I'd like to say is also important to get your hay quality tested. I mean, in, in some instances, you said low quality hay is fine, but it's always good to know to know kind of what you have out there. And so all of our extension offices have have the ability to send um, samples in of forages. I always encourage producers to do that because if someone comes to me and says, well, I, I wanna do this, I would like to know what their forage is that they're yeah. feeding. And that's a baseline um, for that diet. 18 to $25 to get a, a forage analysis. That's pretty cheap investment to, yeah. to know what you've you've got and, and what you're going to provide to those animals. To get protein and energy. So, Paul, thanks so much for joining me today. Um, we'll have all the information that we talked about today in addition to Paul's fact sheet um, in our show notes. And I hope everybody's having a great week and we will catch you next time. Thank you very much. 